The book of Psalms is not merely a collection of various laments, prayers, songs, and litanies. There's sort of an argument happening in the book. There's, a, there's sort of an implicit debate going through all 150 of them. And the first Psalm, Psalm 1, sort of throws down the gauntlet. Uh, it's what Walter Brueggemann calls a Psalm of orientation. Like many others, it insists that the universe makes sense. It, it has a grain. And we can live our lives with the grain of the universe or against it. If we live with the grain, our lives will be blessed. The psalm itself describes lives like that as being like trees planted by streams of water that yield fruit in season and the leaves don't wither. In all that they do, concludes the psalmist, they prosper. But not every psalm strikes that tone. The 13th psalm opens like this. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? These are psalms of disorientation. They are complaints voiced by those who feel deceived, betrayed, alone, rather than blessed. These psalms make us a little uncomfortable, in part because we've been sold an overly romantic view of what our relationship with God looks like, much in the way we've been sold an overly romantic view of what marriage looks like. You know, marriage counselors will often say that it's not conflict that destroys marriages, it's unresolved conflict that does. I think Jen and I have had about three fights in our marriage. Unfortunately, we have them over and over again. We keep having them, those same three fights. But we're working at it. And while, of course, I would love to never have another conflict again, there are those moments when you resist the temptation to shut down or walk away. And, and instead, we, we talk and we listen and, and, and something opens up. And it's not just that you go back to normal after conflict, after working through a conflict like that. No, so something changes for the better. I, un I understand Jen better. Jen understands me better. I understand me better. I, we understand our marriage better. And sometimes God feels like a spouse who's off doing God only knows what while you're at home at wit's end. And the psalmists feel no need to just suck it up and pretend everything's fine leaving the conflict unresolved. No, the psalmists are going to have a word. Laments, laments often end the way a good, good conflicts end. Something opens up. Psalm 13, which begins with, How long, O Lord, ends with, I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. They come to that conclusion because of their willingness to engage, to fight, not in spite of it. 
Well, the first, the verses that compose the first half of Psalm 85 are a psalm of disorientation. But it's not that they're so much angry at God, is that they know that God, they feel that God is angry with them, right? Will you be angry at us forever? The psalmist asks in verse five. And the, the, the first half sort of culminates, it ends with the psalmist imploring God to show us your steadfast love. In Hebrew, the word there is your hesed. God's hesed refers to God's dogged determination, God's refusal to break covenant with God's people despite their lack of determination to keep it. And so the psalmist is saying, show us that again. Show us that hesed. And it is this, this crying out to God to demonstrate hesed that the psalm then makes a turn. The disorientation moves to reorientation. All right, so let's look at it now. That's on page in your pew Bible. It is on page uh, 421. All right, so we'll start at verse 8. I will listen to what God the Lord will say. He promises peace to his people, his saints. But let them not return to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. So the scholar uh, John Golden Gay points out that these verses uh, resemble words and imagery found in the prophet Isaiah, especially in the, the latter half of Isaiah, where the prophet is speaking to a desperately homesick people in Babylonian captivity. Israel had lacked hesed. They'd broken covenant and turned to other gods. And so they were awaiting a word from the Lord, a word assuring them that God would in fact demonstrate hesed and bring them home again. Now, as I, even though Isaiah's words and imagery echo through this psalm, they're, they're resonating within not that context, but a different context. The clues herein in the first half suggest this psalm derives not from a people living in uh, captivity in Babylon. It's, they're probably living, it seems as though they're living on their homeland, but, but the, uh, Golden Gate suggests that what's going on here is that uh, there's maybe some sort of natural disaster that prompted the composition of this psalm. There's maybe a drought or something, and this would explain why the why the hope that the psalmist talks about is a hope that the land, the land will demonstrate God's hesed. We will know that God has kept covenant with us because the land will flourish again. Now, I don't know about you, but there's something about the logic of that, that 
makes me a little uneasy, at least initially. It sounds a bit like the prosperity gospel. I don't know if that's a phrase you're familiar with. Sometimes called the gospel of health and wealth. Name it and claim it, blab it and grab it. Um, you know, any preacher on TV that you know, calls donations seed money is likely a proponent of the uh, prosperity gospel. You, you sow into their ministry and God will ensure that you reap a reward many times over. So basically it uh, equates blessing with financial gain or healing, health and wealth. And you could picture the psalmist staring earnestly into the camera with a 1-800 number underneath saying, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. We just have to believe and we'll be rich. <coughs> Which is kind of gross, right? But sometimes the critique of that prosperity gospel is often a little gross too, because the problem, they say what the problem with the prosperity gospel is, that it confuses material blessings with spiritual blessings. Now maybe they'll grant that the psalmist has in mind material blessings, but they'll say, oh, but that's Old Testament thinking. You know, uh, they believed in a you know, earthly kingdom. We believe in a heavenly kingdom. Nah, that's, not, that's not quite it either. Like I said, this, this psalmist appears to have uh, immersed themselves in the words and ideas of Isaiah. And what's interesting, though, is that the psalmist is not, uh, does not then proclaim a word from the Lord so much as anticipates a word from the Lord. Right? He's not like his ancestors in exile who looked to the prophets to speak on behalf of God. The psalmist already knows what God will say. And here's what God will say. Peace. Shalom. In the Hebrew. Now, peace or shalom in the scriptures, I mean, first of all, it refers to the absence of conflict, but it's much more than that. Much, much more. Think about the creation in the beginning of Genesis. It exists in a state of shalom. Everything is in proper relationship to everything else. God and humanity, humanity and creation, humanity in itself. Everything is properly aligned with the source of life and goodness. When Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it disturbs this peace. You will be like gods, says the serpent. And it's true. What it doesn't tell them is that they'll be pretty terrible at being gods. Now, I don't know, do you remember the reaction, the first reaction Adam and Eve have upon eating of the fruit? Anybody? What? Yes, they realize they are naked. You know, so it's, they, take, they, they eat the fruit, and then they're like, oh, never noticed that before, right? Uh, better cover that up. So, you know... And so you wonder, well, why is it that they never realized that they were naked before? Because they were too busy just living. 
too busy loving life, being connected with God, being connected with one another, being connected with the creation. And now it's like, ah, oh, something's wrong. And so there is, uh, there is this perfectly aligned uh, creation shows its uh, misalignment in the relationship to yourself. And then God comes, coming, it comes calling. And that no longer feels right. So what do they do? They scoot off into some bushes. So that relationship is broken. And then God asks Adam what's up, and Adam tries to blame Eve. So now that relationship is broken. And then Eve blames the serpent, and, and God says, okay, I hate to tell you this, but here's the deal. You've thrown everything out of alignment. In fact, cursed is the ground because of you. So what God's saying is the earth itself will experience the consequences of our misalignment. And I don't know if there's ever been a time in history where the truth of that is more evident. The earth is not simply out of alignment. It's in crisis. We've pumped an unprecedented amount of carbon into the atmosphere. Every year we're setting records for te uh, high temperatures. There's wildfires and, and floods and mega droughts. I mean, shouldn't we cry out? If ever there was a reason to lament, this is it. This, this, this blue marble placed precisely in the right spot in the vast ocean of space, placed just far enough away from this unrelenting ball of fire to sustain everything, every, every butterfly on every flower swaying in a gentle breeze. It's all so well aligned. This planet, like its creator, has shown us Hesed. It has kept its end of the bargain. The problem is us. We're misaligned. We hem and haw and squabble over what to do. And meanwhile, another glacier slides into the ocean. Another species goes extinct. And sea levels continue to rise. So we cry out. Not into an empty void. It's not a cry of despair. It's a cry out to God. For God's steadfast love. For divine hesed. Forgive us. Save us. But now, like, whoa. what do we expect from God? What might it look like for God to respond, to show Hesed? What can we reasonably hope God will do? I mean, are we crying out for a miracle, for glaciers to somehow reemerge, for sea levels to just recede? On the one hand, I don't know. I, obviously, God's free to respond however God sees fit. It may be, however, that the word upon which this psalm hinges, makes its turn, this word that is, is a word to those that the psalmist is talking to, is also a word to us. And that word, again, is peace. Shalom. But how can that, how can a word of peace speak to our environmental crisis? Well, I was thinking about this article that uh, Rodney Clapp wrote uh, 
some time ago about giving a sort of a brief history of advertising in America. And according to the article, before the Industrial Revolution, the individual consumer looked to the ads because they had a need, right? You're like, oh, I need this. I'm going to go look in the ads to see if I can find it. But with the Industrial Revolution, we increased our capacity to uh, to produce goods. In fact, we produced more goods than we had need for. Well, now what do you do? Well, you advertise. You create a need. A really effective ad is not one that simply addresses an existing need. No, a really effective ad is one which, until you'd seen it, you had no idea the need existed. But now, you feel like Adam and Eve Without it, you feel naked. I mean, for example, back in 2001, how many of us would listen to 10 hours of music straight without repeating a song while on a walk? Mm, not many. But in October of that year, Apple released the iPod. 400 million times since, Someone's been convinced that's precisely what they need. Suddenly going anywhere without a day's worth of music to take with you feels like going somewhere without pants, right? Shane Hips uh, used to work for an ad agency and one of their clients was Porsche. He said their job was not to showcase the various features of the sports car. Their job was to figure out what men over 35 wanted from life and to create ads that implied that driving a Porsche would provide all of that. But it doesn't, right? I mean, nothing can. None of that brings shalom. None of it realigns us. And while that may be disappointing to us, it's not a problem for Porsche or Anybody else, right? Because it's that dissatisfaction, it's that misalignment that needs that, those needs that keeps us consuming. I mean, if we're satisfied, we stop consuming. Consumers must consume, must always have needs for bigger, faster, flashier, more luxurious, and just plain more. The problem is, the planet can't keep up with us. It's depleted, can't breathe, it's dying. Something has to stop. I mean, it, but it's hard to imagine anything changing. We've become so accustomed to our misalignment, we can't imagine anything different. In fact, sometimes we're quite hostile to anything different. To realign us, to realign us with God, with one another in the world. In other words, to bring the kingdom of God, God fully and completely aligned with us, attached to a womb and became one with us. But we rejected his peace and chose violence, crucifying Jesus to ensure he died an excruciating death. That would have been it. I mean, it's actually hard to imagine anyone at that point not saying, well, they get exactly what they deserve. <laughs>
But our God does not say that. Why? Hesed. Our God remains relentlessly determined, steadfastly committed to God's covenant with us. God will not allow our faithlessness to dictate how, how we are or how it all turns out. The resurrection is God's way of saying, this is my story to tell. And how is it going to end? With peace, with shalom. To hear this word of peace is to stop demanding satisfaction from things that don't satisfy. You are not a consumer with insatiable needs. You are a child of God, realigned and made whole. The gospel is not about getting more. The gospel is knowing you have everything already. And embracing this reality is not only the hope for us, it's the hope of the world. It's the earth's hope. This is why the Apostle Paul, that's why he writes, the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Right? I mean, the creation is not just a spectator on the sidelines. No, this creation is a recipient of this gospel. Creation is eagerly awaiting because it knows it, it shares in the victory and the celebration. Because a human, a humanity that is realigned with God realigns the creation. And when this happens, our earthly home doesn't really survive, doesn't just come off life support. No. According to the psalmist, glory dwells in our land. In the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen.